Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. I think it's real good to have the serenity prayer right before you talk. I like it late. (laughs) You know, you get in a situation and you have to accept something you can't change and it's too late to change this. (laughs) And the reason they have it so cold in here is that I want you to think I'm shaking because I'm cold. And I I thank you for that. I am Ruth and I've loved an alcoholic for 45 years. Most of the time. (laughs) I have to throw that in because there were times that I got mixed up between love and hate and I didn't know which was which or what was going to be. I'm a member of the Long Creek Alabama Family Group in Huntersville, North Carolina, which is a very small group out in the country. I had to change my home group uh, seven years ago when we moved. My home group before that, and the one that really got me started in Al-Anon, is the Hawthorne Al-Anon Family Group in Charlotte. And for 13 years, I was a member of that group. And they gave me a lot of support. They gave me a lot of courage. And they got me steered into service work. And our present delegate now from North Carolina says, and I agree with her, that service work is addictive. You get in it and you just don't get out. And I'm still hanging around and enjoying it. I'd like to thank the committee for inviting me. I have to admit that when Carol called me uh, and I said yes and hung the phone up, Marl was not at home and I nearly went to pieces. I called my sponsor who lives out of town and I said, do you know what I've just done? I've said yes to an invitation that I'm not sure of. <laughs> And she gave me the support that she always gives me. And I'll have to throw this in. I called her not long ago and and chatted for a while. When the telephone bill came, Merle saw it and he said, $13 for a call to Burlington? And I said, yes. He says, you don't know that much. And I told him no, but Colleen did, thank goodness. <laughs> so I would suggest right here that if you don't have a sponsor, get one. It may cost you, and it might be cheaper to get one that's closer, but I, uh, she has given me so much support. The letters that I have received from Joe and Corliss and Carol have certainly given me a lot of support. We've enjoyed the fruit that's been in our room, and I love this flower. I was one that never got many flowers, and it's uh, a real treat. You know, uh, last night, I think Lois said she had never talked to a large group like that. Well, I'll have to say I haven't either. And I'd like to throw something in right now. Um, I want you to understand that I did not bribe Bill to give that pull for Al-Anon talk this morning <laughs> to try to get everybody up. You know, he admitted he was subject to bribery, but I was not in on that. I do appreciate you getting up at 9 o'clock to come down here. As I said, I am Ruth and I love an alcoholic, and this program of Al-Anon and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous has 
given us love that I don't think we would have ever found. I was born the ninth child in a family that I know loved me. They didn't demonstrate a lot of love. We kissed when we left home and we kissed when we came home. But I knew that there was some security and some love there. And to let you know that alcoholism didn't cause all of my problems, I got the bright idea one time and thought for sure that I was adopted. And who would adopt a ninth child? <laughs> that sort of lets you know that I wasn't all here when I got here. <laughs> I met Merle uh, while I was a student nurse at, uh, in Charlotte. Before that time, I had not had any contact with any alcohol, and I didn't have any contact with alcohol for a good while after meeting him. My family was uh, very strict. There were, it was a Christian family. We did not uh, talk a lot of religion at home, but we attended church regularly. I don't know how much alcohol was talked about at home, but I do know that I was protected from alcohol, not knowing that that's what was happening. My father died when I was 14, and my mother was very strict. And I had a lot of resentments about this for a long time. I could not go what we call public dances at that time. She would not allow me to do that. She wouldn't allow me to ride in a, a car with a boy alone after dark. So uh, I was really protected, and it was not until I got in the program I don't think that I really understood this. Someone in the family explained to me that before I came along that my father had had a problem with alcohol. And I understand now that my mother was trying to keep me from getting in contact with people that drank. They didn't have a program back then, and she didn't. She never mentioned this to me, and uh, but I can understand being a mother and also having had the experience with the alcohol that I have had that why she was wanting to protect me. My first, uh, I guess, contact with alcohol was while I was a student. And, of course, we got patients in that were the result of. And I looked at them, and I would think I would take care of them because I was going to be graded, you know, and I knew that. But I didn't have much compassion. And I thought they brought their problems on themselves. And I thought this for a long time that anybody that drank and got in trouble, they brought it on themselves. When I met Merle, he was dating my roommate, and he brought his best friend over for me to date. And we double dated, I guess, for about a year and a half. And during this time, Merle and I became real close. We were could share our problems with each other. We would talk things over and get together sometimes when uh, Virginia would be working and I would not be working. And during my days as a student nurse, if you had a boyfriend, if you went on night duty, you lost him. Because we worked 12 hours. We worked from 7 to 7. And when you were on, you were on for a month at a time without a night off. So somebody, you could see him come and taking somebody else out from the nurse's home. But that was all right. When Merle and Virginia broke up, we uh, were still friends. And when he would date different people, he would bring them by for me to meet, usually. And this was fine. I was still dating his buddy. And uh, 
After I graduated, I guess uh, for about a year, he had been out of town working. And one night he called me. I had had no contact with him for a year. He called me one night and he asked me where this girl was, about six he named, wanting to find. He tried to get in touch with them and he couldn't because when you graduate you move out and everybody lives in their separate places. And I gave him all this information and of course by that time it was too late for him to call them so he asked me to go out with him. And I went with no hard feelings that I wasn't first on his list because we still were just good friends. But this was the beginning of a real good, friendly relationship. We like to do the same things that we just started out uh, bowling together. We had rent bicycles and ride them, and we played an awful lot of tennis. And we had some dress-up dates, but it didn't bother me. I wasn't trying to put on any, you know, impress him in any way because he knew me too well for that. And we finally started talking about getting married. And uh, we had, by this time, I had had some contact with some social drinking. And we would go to some parties and Merle would drink some. I lived with my mother. I brought her over when I graduated. And I couldn't let her know that I would take a drink because she was uh, very much against it. But I enjoyed some social drinking, too. And I liked what Sally said, it helped me to understand where I really was and really am where alcohol is concerned when she described the difference between alcohol, the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. I was the one that when I started losing control, I wanted to quit and did with no problems. If we were to party and drinking any, uh, I would always start asking, when are we going home? Because I didn't want to go home and drink right before I went home. I like to have a couple of hours before I would go home because I did not like the feeling if I went to bed and it would spin at all. So our alcohol was really no problem for me. We discussed drinking and uh, made our first decision about alcohol. Merle didn't drink a lot at that time, but, uh, you know, as I said, occasionally he would. So we made the decision. We had heard somewhere that people could have problems in a marriage if there was, you know, much drinking. And our first decision was that if I ever drank too much, all he had to do was, you know, remind me. (laughs) If he ever drank too much, all I had to do was say, Merle, that's enough. (laughs) Well... All you Alanons in this room know what happened when I started reminding him that he had had enough. We moved to Elizabeth City, North Carolina during World War II, and uh, he was on a defense project. And we lived in a housing project where there were a lot of young people about our age. We had two children at this time. And about the only thing we could do for any recreation at all was to get together and drink some and eat some and play cards. Nobody had, uh, well, we didn't have a car at that time, and some of the others didn't, and you couldn't get gas, and you couldn't get tires, and a lot of these things. And one of my defects that I've had a real hard time getting rid of is wanting people to like me and to think well of me. Particularly, I wanted his friends to like me, and I wanted everybody to think he had the best wife in the world, you know. One day, a couple came by, and the fellow worked with him. I had never met him before, 
and I'm sure we had a few drinks. And they, this was in the afternoon, and they invited us to go home with them for dinner. And I thought this was fun because I didn't get to go out much. While we were, I was getting the two children dressed to go, Ma went in the bedroom and went to sleep. When I got ready to go, I went in to call him and I couldn't get him awake. Somebody had told me, or I had heard somewhere, that if you drank too much, you passed out. And I didn't think nice people did this. And I thought he had passed out, and I was embarrassed. And I had to go out and tell this couple that we couldn't go home with them. Not only embarrassed, it made me very angry. So I made my second decision about alcohol. We weren't going to have any more in the house. If it was going to embarrass me, this was it. So I went to the kitchen sink, and under the sink is where he kept his bottle, and I got it and I emptied it and threw it out. And I don't know whether any of you in here are old enough to remember that alcohol was rationed during World War II or not, but it was. And we had a ration book for me, one for Merle, and one for my mother, who didn't really live with us at that time. That should have told me something, but it didn't. <laughs> And I got to thinking he slept long enough that I, you know, got real mad. And I thought, well, I'll just fix it. I said, if you're just throwing that liquor out, it's not going to stop it. He can go buy some more. So I burned the ration books. <coughs> when he got up, he came out and uh, looked at me. And, of course, first he went to get a drink and it was gone. Now, he thought his buddy had taken the bottle. And I will have to throw in right now that he went to sleep on purpose. He didn't want to go with these people, and he didn't have the nerve to tell them. And he had not really passed out. He just played sleep, I think. And when he found out that his bottle was gone, I could have let him think that the buddy had taken it and gotten by with it, but not me. I had to let him know what I thought about it and how I felt. And he didn't think much of that. So then I looked at him and I said, well, that ain't all. And I explained in a lot of terms why we weren't going to have any more alcohol in the house. And that I had burned the ration books. He looked at me and he says, I wish you were a man so I could knock hell out of you. And out the door he went. Now, I have no idea. I don't remember what time it was, but he was not gone but about 10 or 15 minutes when he came back and he'd had a drink. Well, now, this to my ego, wanting people to like me so well, you know, the next day things never are as bad as they were the day before. And I got to thinking, well, it really wasn't all that bad. And what have I done? We'd get together and people would offer him drinks, and I might have had one. I don't remember. I can remember uh, taking one or starting to take one, and you can imagine what kind of glare I got from him <laughs> that I would do that when I had we couldn't return the favor. So after a few days, I decided that, well, you know, I didn't like it the way it was. It took care of my drinking. I didn't drink anymore at that time. And finally I went down to the, wherever you go to get uh, new ration books, and this is when I started lying about alcohol. I went down and told them that I would want to apply for replacements for ration books we'd lost. 
and didn't dare tell them what had happened. It took 90 days to get these books, but I was the one that went down and applied. I was the one that went down and got them. And we had our social drinking some more. I'm grateful for these years that we had of social drinking because I knew what he could be without alcoholism. And I think this gave me hope for the future, that someday we would get back like we were. Now, when we got married, we had the best communication in the world. We could discuss anything. And and I was thinking there were friends of mine that were getting married at the time that had been dating these people, and they had been dressing up for them, and they were scared they were going to lose them, and they didn't, uh, you know, they didn't really know each other, I felt. And I thought, we're so fortunate that we know each other so well because I didn't have to uh, get down. He knew me probably better than I knew myself, and I thought we were real fortunate. Little did I know that the disease of alcoholism would come in and really tear our marriage up. But as you know, it can do that. We had several years of, of just fun drinking, and then we got into, as you know, this is an insidious disease, and it affects both of us. He happened to be a periodic, and I don't mean to tell his story, but I have to do this to let you know how I felt about things. He would go on binges, and the ones in here that have experienced this will know that every binge you think is the last, you know someday he's going to quit. I went through all efforts that anybody here has tried, I believe, other than really leading to get him or try to control his drinking. I didn't care if he drank. I just didn't want him to drink so much. I wanted him to drink like, like nice people drank, you know. And, of course, uh, Lois said last night she was a prim and proper school teacher and I was a prim and proper nurse. And I was supposed to be able to handle all situations. And I would nearly let him die before I would ever let him go to the hospital that I worked. He rolled out of bed one time and hurt his shoulder. And uh, I wouldn't take him to the hospital. After a while, he went to the doctor and I dared him to let anybody know who he really was. And uh, I believe my pride, and I think pride almost kills a lot of alcoholics, and it certainly almost killed him and me. I tried always. Uh, you know, I couldn't understand alcoholism. I didn't know anything about it. And I would go around. I found the question somewhere, and I'd go down these questions that you asked the alcoholic, and, you know, I was taking his inventory answering these questions. And when I could come, like, the first time I looked at him, I think after three or four questions, I could start saying no to them. And I thought, oh, great, he's not an alcoholic. The next time I got around to it, I'd probably say yes to about half of them. It was getting worse and worse. But as long as I could say no to one, if this had not happened, I would say, thank goodness he is not an alcoholic. Because I thought the alcoholic was, as so many people think, the skid row bum. And I thought we were better than that, and I didn't want this to happen. I used to go around and keep a record of bottles. <clears throat> you know, the date and price was on them for a long time. And I would, would get the date and I'd get the price. And I wouldn't show them to him until I had a good list. And I, and I would go to him and show him every once in a while how much money he was spending on booze. And we weren't that well off, you know. I was thinking he was depriving me and the children. 
we had four children, and um, I thought, as all of you think, if you loved me and if you loved your family, you wouldn't do this. <clears throat> Finally, after many threats of leaving, and I tried silent treatment, and I tried raising cane, and I tried all these things, I was working. I was going back to school because I knew I was going to have to better myself to make more money to support us. And I would do this and help out financially when I had had to. I said I liked a roof over my head, and I wanted one over the children. And I tried to keep people from knowing. When I would threaten to leave, I had nowhere to go. Now, with all my family, I couldn't go to them. Well, you don't take four little children in with anybody, just, you know, uninvited anyway. But I couldn't let them know we had the problem. Couldn't let anybody know it. And it worked. Uh, I know most of you have heard of Jody Kelman, and I had the opportunity to have him or some of the people that are professionals in alcoholism to come over and talk to students. And I would sit on the back row because I thought if I sat on the front row, he could look at me and tell that we had a problem at home, and I didn't want him to know it. It finally got to the point that I had to do something because I was in a rat race. I swallowed all the pride that I had, and I made an appointment at the Alcoholic Information Center. I think this is when I took the first step without knowing what I was doing. I didn't know about the first step. And I went down and talked to them. Now, it, my appointment was two or three days later. And our youngest daughter, who was 14 at that time, was still at home. So she came to me afterwards, sometime during those few days, and she said, Mother, what's happened? She says, you're talking a whole lot sweeter to Daddy. And I was. Now, I had heard that alcoholism is a disease and could apply it to anybody, any other alcoholic. But when I walked in my door, I forgot all I had learned. I could not apply it at home. I was told one time you could love him to sobriety. And I walked in the house, you know, with all intentions. I was going to love him to sobriety. And I looked at him on that sofa and I thought, they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> How can you? But when I got this little bit of hope that something was going to happen, whether it was good or bad or indifferent, I didn't know. But when I had humbled myself to ask for help, and I went down and did. And what I'm going to tell you that I did to get to Al-Anon, I'm not advising anyone to do it. I'm just sharing with you what happened to me. They gave me several alternatives, and I was to make my choice. I was advised to talk to him when he was sober. And I don't know that I had ever done this. I think when he got over about and was sober, I didn't want to talk about it because I was afraid he'd start again. I did my talking when he was drinking. They told me also to talk to him unemotionally. And, of course, this I had never done. They told me to make my decision and be sure that's what I wanted to do and be willing to follow through. I had never followed through with any threats before. So I waited, and I had made the decision that I was going to give him a choice. We sat down at our little kitchen table where we had so many of our conversations, and I told him that I loved him, 
and that I wanted to help him and he was willing to do something about his drinking. But he had to make the choice of the bottle or me. It must have floored him because this is the first time I ever gave him the choice. I was always telling him when to drink, how much to, and when not to, and watched him like a hawk. And I just laid it on to him, just let him, just put, turn it over to him. This too, I didn't know what was happening, but looking back, I know that this is where the God of my understanding came in my life and started directing me and me starting listening to him. They told me, too, if he didn't give me a decision in a few days that I could assume he was choosing the bottle, or in a reasonable length of time, I think they said that. Well, you know, when you want to do something, you want to do it, and you want it to happen fast. I had made this decision, and I had put it in his lap. I didn't know what a reasonable length of time was, but several days went by. He was not drinking, and I can't describe to you the feeling that I had. I wanted to go to him and say, put my arms around him and say, well, we'll try one more time. We had done this many times, but somehow, and I thank God, kept me from doing this. I had could offer him Butner, I think, was about the only treatment center in North Carolina at that time. But, of course, he couldn't be out of work 28 days. This I couldn't understand then because he'd been piled on the sofa for more longer than that. And I thought, what is 28 more days? But I didn't say this. I waited. Finally, he looked at me one day and he said, do you think they could help me at the information center? If this had happened a week before that, I would have had his appointment made. But when he came to me and asked me this, I said, I don't know. You can call him and find out, which he did. And I'm grateful for this because we came to the program together. At that time, I was so timid and I was so shy and didn't want anybody to know what was going on, I would have never gone to Al-Anon alone. Now, they recommended Al-Anon very much at the information center. I couldn't understand why I didn't know about it before. I knew about Alcoholics Anonymous. But I think, I must have thought, or it's the only thing I can think now, that I thought Al-Anon were for women whose husbands were NAA. And he wasn't in AA, so it just, you know, passed through. But I would not have had the nerve to have gone to an Al-Anon meeting. We went to an open meeting together, and of course I was afraid. I didn't know what kind of people we were going to find, still wanting to be with nice people. We walked into the Hawthorne group, and there must have been a hundred people there that night. Now, we had not done much together as a couple. Our communication was terrible. But they took us in as a couple. And there were about six couples in this group that really looked after us. They saw to it that we would get, were together after meetings. They would call us between meetings. We would go places, and I'll never forget the first summer we were in. They said we had to go to the North Carolina State Convention. And we were to meet in Salisbury, which is about 40 miles north of Charlotte, at 8 o'clock in the morning for breakfast, which we did. And there were about 18 or 20 people there. And, you know, this was <laughs> queer to us, people getting up to go out to breakfast at 8 o'clock in the morning. But they took us to this convention, and we really got in the fellowship. 
I have to admit that for a long time in the program, now the next meeting night after our first meeting, they told me that Al-Anon met over there, and I went with Al- in, in Al-Anon and started in Al-Anon in the beginning. But for a long time in the program, I was as obsessed with his program as I was with his drinking. I was hoping he was hearing those 12 steps over in the AA room, and I wanted him to practice them, and I wanted him to get like these good AA men, sober people that I was meeting. And to me, there's a difference in the fellowship and in the program. I was in the fellowship for a good while, and thank God for it. If it had not been for the fellowship, I might not have made the program. They kept me around long enough that I got in the program. And to me, the program is the 12 steps of Al-Anon, which is the same as the 12 steps of AA, with the exception of one word in the 12th step. We say help others instead of help alcoholics. They told me the first night I went that I was not responsible for anybody else's behavior. But I was brought up to believe that behind every good man there was a good woman. And I thought, well, I had to be responsible for some of it. In fact, the good behavior I wanted to be responsible for. The theme for this conference, this convention, gratitude. I'm real happy to have the opportunity to share with you my gratitude today for the program of Al-Anon. I finally got around to looking at the 12 steps and applying them to me. Now, I latched on to the serenity prayer right quick. I liked it because it, it gave me an alternative. I just really didn't have to try to fix everything. But I was grateful in the beginning for the you people that were there when I got there. And I think al has given us an awful lot of gifts. I got hope in the beginning. I think I got hope when I first called the information center and then when I went to the Al-Anon meeting and saw the happy faces and knowing that people that had done the same thing I had done and they were making it and had the same thoughts that I had had were making it. This gave me hope for a better day. Acceptance. I had to first accept the fact that I was powerless over alcohol and that my life was unmanageable now I knew like Garrett said yesterday his life was unmanageable I knew Merle's was but I thought I had kept things together pretty well and you know when you keep a family together and you work and you do all these things and you uh, go crazy in the meantime <laughs> You, uh, it's a little bit hard to see that you're unmanageable. It took me a while in the program to look back and see how flaky I really was. I did an awful lot of crazy things. I had to accept the fact that I could not change anybody but me. And the only way I could change me was to look at the 12 steps, get to the fourth one, and find out what needed changing. Love. I really found a lot of love in the program. And it's unconditional, and I think this is great. I'm able to give some love unconditional, which uh, everything in the in, before the program, I think, in our home situation, I'll love you if, and I'll love you if you don't do that. 
And I showed that. That's the way I lived. When he wasn't doing what I wanted him to do, I didn't love him so good. But I have learned to love, and, and it's just so great to be able to hug and love people and show love. This was something I had to learn, and I love it. Got a lot of freedom in the program, freedom from responsibility, freedom to be myself, and to be accepted by others. This has meant a lot to me. I also had the freedom to make my own decision as what kind of day I'm going to have now. You know, my moods beforehand always depended on just what Merle was doing. I'm not strong enough yet that living in the house with somebody 24 hours every day that moods can't affect me, but not like they used to. I have the freedom to go and be active in Al-Anon, and I'm grateful for that. Courtesy. It isn't very hard to be courteous to people at meetings. And I was that, and I've always tried to be courteous to people because I wanted people to like me. But at home, I felt like I could be any way I wanted to be. My sponsor told me one time that if you can't practice the program of Al-Anon at home, you don't have much. And I believe this. And I have found that there's a lot more happiness in our household when I'm courteous. Courage. Al-Anon has given me an awful lot of courage. Before Al-Anon, I could not have stood up here and told you my name. It has given me the courage to venture out and try some things that I had never tried before. And to be able to do some things. I took a cake decorating course and uh, after I got into the program, and I love to do that. I'm not very good, but I like to do it, and I was brave enough to make two wedding cakes for people that everybody was going to see and hope they didn't fall apart. <laughs> and I think the program of Alan and I made that possible for me. Self-esteem. I've gotten some self-esteem. I've always had a hard time not realizing and not believing that somebody else could always do something better than I could. I still have problems with that. But I am able to think better of me. I know that I'm a child of God and that God loves me. And I know that an awful lot of people love me. And this helps. Humility. You know, I like, uh, I was, had some humility when I cried out for help, I think. I like the definition of humility as being able to be teachable. And I've had to be humble many times asking for guidance. The third step made me more humble than anything else. I also like the definition that I've heard in the program that humility is the ability to stand, and the willingness to kneel. And I think it takes both. Faith. You know, I always had a lot of faith, I thought. And there was a time in my life that I understood, or didn't understand God, but I looked to Him for guidance in most anything I did. But in this family disease of alcoholism, I got away from all that. I was bargaining all my prayers were, well, if you will do this, I will do that. You know, I'll teach Sunday school and I'll do this. 
I'll have to share with you an experience of teaching Sunday school. I was going to church because I felt like I ought to and wanted to. I had been raised to go to church. I was scared to death people at church would find out why my husband wasn't with me or would ask me if I had one. And I was put in a Sunday school class. I went to a Sunday school class of couples. And, you know, I felt kind of funny about that. I was scared they were going to get around to wanting to know where the other half of the couple was. And the only thing for women was the old ladies' class, and I wasn't ready for that. So I volunteered to help with the fifth grade group. We had a leader of that group, and we had three of us working in the group. Every Sunday I went, I was scared to death that somebody would find out that Marl was at home, hungover, or drinking, whichever. And we had been in the program, I guess, a very short time when the leader of the teachers of our fifth grade group and her husband came walking in day eight. And this was some time after I had been uh, involved with the uh, Sunday school class. And I thought, how stupid can you get if you just let somebody know that you have a problem? Maybe I would have gotten here sooner. Talking about getting here soon, I still believe we get here when we're supposed to. If anyone had asked me two weeks before we came, before I had called for my appointment, offered Al-Anon to me, I would have looked at him and said it isn't that bad. Because I had to get to that point that it was bad enough and I had hurt enough to do something gotten an awful lot of peace of mind. I don't have to worry about everything. And living one day at a time is just tremendous. I'll have to admit I lived about two days since last night. (laughs) I made about 12 talks during the night (laughs) and couldn't sleep much because I do get up tight. But I don't have to worry about everything and everybody. I can just sort of go. God has been good to us. He has given us a lot. We uh, have all we need. We're not wealthy, and we don't have an awful lot of material things, but we still have each other. We have sobriety. We have love. We have the love of our children. We have four fine children. And I thank God for raising them. I worked and was uh, in a tizzy most of the time that I was at home and I think one thing I'm grateful for I don't think that any of them at least they say this today ever doubted our love for them regardless I tried not to uh, talk down about Merle to them they saw they were old enough and they realized what was going on in fact he uh took a few safaris, we refer to them now. And just to show you uh, my feelings and my reactions to this, when you get dropped off at work one day and, and somebody's going on a business trip and then you don't hear anything, you don't hear anything, you don't hear anything, and three weeks went by and I hadn't heard anything, didn't tell anybody, nobody knew he was gone except one couple, had no idea where he was. And you know, they were talking about every once in a while you hear about somebody being found dead in a car somewhere. And I thought, golly, 
they don't find him. He's going to die of natural causes sober, and they're going to want to know what in the hell's wrong with me. So I finally called this couple that knew he was gone, and I said, how about taking me down to the police station and let me report him missing? I went down to the police station to report him missing. Of course, the first question, does he drink? I said, he'll take a couple of drinks occasionally. <laughs> but I had done my wife the duty and reported him, and if anybody found out, that's all I was supposed to do. And I felt good about it. Well, I'll have to let you know, this time he was gone three months. We survived, and he came home. Humor is something else I've gotten in the program, and I am so grateful that we can sit down and laugh about things that happen. <clears throat> Back to freedom, resentments is one thing that I am free of. I hold no resentments for anything that ever happened. I may build up one or two now that things have come along, but I mean, as far as... The drinking is concerned, I do not have any resentments. The second time, the second safari that, that he took, <clears throat> I think it was two or three months, I'm not sure, but you know, you, it doesn't hurt, you just sort of get conditioned, it wasn't quite as bad the second time. One afternoon about 4.30, I was sitting in the dining room at the table studying, working or doing something, and the door opens, and here he comes. And he looks at me and says, hi, like you left that morning. <laughs> and you know what he said? Do you need anything at the grocery store? <laughs> he said, I tried to get home before the close. <laughs> you know what my reaction was? I looked at him and I said, hell no. <laughs> But these things are so funny. You know, I can understand now. What would I have said? You know, when you do something wrong, it's so hard. And if you've done something wrong two months ago and come in to face it, you know you've got to have some good reason. He was proud. He had come home with a doll in his pocket. <laughs> and I can understand that. And we have a lot of things that happen during the drinking times that are really hilarious. And I'm sure all of you have experienced some of this. You know, uh, the promises that are in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, all Al-Anons get those. If we get in here and, and apply the 12 steps to our lives, we uh, achieve, I think, all of these promises. And to me, it's tremendous, and I think that I have done this. Merle's safaris were to Florida. He used to... You know, it's, even in sobriety, would sit down and talk about what he saw in Florida and what he did, and I would look at him and I think, how can you do that? I didn't like Florida. I didn't want any part of it. I had never been, and all I knew about were his safaris. And he would talk about it to people like that was a, you know, just a real good vacation. Well, we were able to go to Miami for the international. I had thought at one time I would never want to set foot in Florida. We enjoyed that. For the last three winters, we've been able to spend those in Florida. And we go by where he 
surf there to make, you know, a dollar or two when he was on his safaris, and we laugh about that. And it's just, to me, the program is tremendous. And if there's anybody new here, just keep coming and stay with it, and you'll find all the happiness that I have found. I'm able to cope with problems if we have them, and I'll have to admit that we haven't had many lately. Life has been good to us. The program's been good to us. And everything we have and everything we do, I think we both can give credit to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon. I've had the privilege of being in Al-Anon for a little over 19 years. And you may look and say, well, why do you need to come? The Al-Anon program is a living program. And I don't know what I would do without it. I might have one of those slips. Not compassion time, Bill. <laughs> if I had a slip, it would be full of resentment. And I don't want that anymore. And all of our family and all of our friends are in the program. And I really appreciate you letting me share with you this morning. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.